pre-tribulational. And again, this is the view that we will take and we will support it. And also, again, this is the only view that is consistently grammatical, historical in terms of its approach. So the rapture begins at the very beginning. And one of the points that I'm going to make is that the rapture is not what kicks off the Great Tribulation. Do you understand the distinction I'm making here? In other words, it's not the rapture that kicks off the seven years, but something else. Signing of a covenant. Signing of a covenant, exactly. Daniel specifies that. So there may be, and there's no scripture to support this. This is just, I think, a possibility because if it's not tie, if the rapture is not the the beginning of it, then there's the possibility of an interval of time probably short between the rapture and the signing of the covenant. It's the signing of the covenant of Daniel chapter 9 that begins the clock, that begins the time frame, that begins the the chronology of all the events. So there may be a gap of time in there. We'll talk about that when we talk about the rapture. Is that new to you? I just said, well, I mean, just thinking about it. Yeah. That's why it's a blessed hope. Because going through the tribulation is not going to be a very blessed experience. So that's the essence of the pre-tribute. And there's a lot of support for it. We'll probably talk a little bit more about this later. But up front here, again, the only position that holds to a literal interpretation. And also, again... It's not that we come with this viewpoint and hoping for it and then end up with a literal interpretation. We start with a literal interpretation and it drives our conclusion to premillennialism. And that's the way it should be with everything in theology. Start with a proper approach, start with scripture and a proper approach of interpreting and then whatever falls out, that's what you hold to. And that's what falls out when you hold to the literal interpretation. And it's the only position that can be consistent. Again, we make a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. Even the mid-trib, and particularly the post-trib, sees the saints during the tribulation as part of the church, or at least mid-trib sees the church in the first three and a half years. And we would say, no, the church is gone, the church is over, the church age is over, Believers are not gone, and believers are not over, but the church age is over, and now it begins a new time frame, and I I would see the seven years as Jewish. Israel is prominent. A lot of the saints will be Jewish saints during tribulation. They will have an impact on the world. They'll be Gentile saints as well. We'll look at the details of that. This is Daniel's 70th week, a precise time frame. Daniel's 70th week. And we'll look at that Daniel passage. This is also supported by the chronologies of, you might even say, all the major passages. And I'll try to illustrate that with three major passages. The first one, an entire book. This is the book of Revelation in outline form, you might say, or chart form. That's the whole book of Revelation on one slide. The book of Revelation, if you want to include chapter 1, you'd have to put that in the first century. Jesus tells John to record the things that you have seen, past tense. 
And at that time, what he had seen was a vision of the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's Revelation chapter 1. The things which are present tense, I think, is a reference to the things that were in the time of John, when he writes the book of Revelation, the things that are pertaining, it's not real clear, but pertaining to the church age, and the things that are describe conditions relating to the church, chapters 2 and 3. After chapter 3, there is no mention of ecclesia in the book of Revelation except in the conclusion. And it's just an encouragement to send the content of the book to the seven churches. But the church is not mentioned in any of the passages relating, or the term ecclesia is not in any of the passages relating to the tribulation. And even in chapters 20, it's not referred to as well. Now, in chapter 19, I think there's a picture of the church there, but ecclesia, the word, the, the term church is not there. So I see the first four chapters as describing the seven-year period. Chapters 12 through 18 seems to focus on the major players during that period of time. So 4 through 11, major events mainly. 12 through 18, major personages. And then after that seven-year period, chapter 19 is the second coming. And in chapter 6, we have six seal judgments, which we'll, we'll look at some of this detail later. I think it's a panoramic picture of the whole tribulation. Now, there's different views on that. We'll talk about those. I also see a, another set of judgments, trumpets, uh, chapters 8 and 9, trumpet judgments. And then chapter 16, we have bowl judgments. So all of that is description of the tribulation period. Chapter 19, the second coming. Chapter 20 is the kingdom, and it's only John that specifies that it's a thousand years. Chapter 21 and 22 is eternity. That's heaven, the eternal state. Different from the kingdom. And in the outline there, without a mention of the church, you would have a rapture, and then you have a period of time tribulation, so you're premillennial, you're pre-tribulational, you're premillennial, and then you have kingdom. So the chronology, the broad chronology of the book of Revelation. Now, a more specific chronology is harder to come up with in terms of the events during the tribulation. Using the same chart, same timeline, Jesus' exposition, Matthew 24 and 25, I think it follows the same pattern. I see verses 4 through 14, the beginning of birth pains. I think that's a description of the first three and a half years. Because in verse 15, he describes and he refers to Daniel chapter 9, the abomination of desolation. And he says in the middle. So he's tying it to Daniel. So I think... Everything before that pertains to before. And then afterwards, after that event, he says, get out of town. Flee Jerusalem, because this will be great. And he calls it great tribulation. And I think you can come up with a very consistent exposition using that. And we did that in the passage I was referring to earlier. So 24, 4 through 29, and then in verse 30, now you have a description through 31 of the actual second coming. Actually, I should change that. Uh, change that 24, 29 to 31, and change that other one to 20, uh, 15 to 28. That's a mistake. And chapter 25, now he's going to talk about the kingdom. And he gives three parables concerning the kingdom. 
Now, he doesn't describe any detail concerning the kingdom. He's primarily focusing on those that enter in the kingdom. But he's talking about the kingdom in that passage, beginning in verse 1. And two groups enter the kingdom that come out of this tribulation. But the point is, this is the chronology. 45, 1 through 45, this, this is how it fits, fits in. And then he even refers to an eternal state, I think, in verse 46 of the Olivet Discourse. So it fits the chronology, same chronology. Zechariah 14, 1 through 11, again, deals with several events. I think the first two verses speak of the destruction of Jerusalem and tribulation by Gentiles. Jesus calls it the times of the Gentiles in Luke 21. And then I think Zechariah 14, 3 through 4, speaks of Messiah and the Messiah setting foot on the Mount of Olives. You also have a description of astronomical and geophysical events, and I think they take place at the second coming. That's 4 through 8, or verse 4, B through 8. And then verses 9 through 11 describe the, the kingdom that Messiah will establish. Same chronology. Which leads me to believe that we probably have a pre... And it's all Jewish. So both of them are Jewish. Book of Revelation is primarily Jewish. Olivet Discourse, primarily Jewish. Zechariah to the Jewish people, dealing with Jewish eschatology. So the rapture's not there. The church is not there. We'll look at more detail there. So, chronologies of major passages, number five in terms of support. No Old Testament or New Testament tribulation passages have the church in them. No church in Old Testament or New Testament tribulation passages. And there are literally hundreds of them. Virtually every prophet describes some aspects of the tribulation. No church in any of them. Old Testament or New Testament. There's a promise of exemption. In fact, we need to read that one. You might turn to Revelation 3.10, one of the most explicit promises. And by the way, that's not the only one. So, Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the vow. I also will keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, notice a few of the details in the text. The ek there, out of, is the detail, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. The word from there is ek can be used of external protection in other locations when it's used in similar contexts. So from the very hour, so they're kept not just from the trials themselves, but from the very time period as well, the very hour. And notice hour is mentioned two times. The post-tribulationist would interpret the passage as protection from believers during the tribulation, but this specifies with the ek that it's out from the hour. In other words, the entire period of time. And the promise comes from Jesus himself. He's the one that is the deliverer, so he's the one that knows. And notice also later on in the same context, it's not just the church of Philadelphia, of which this is addressed, but in verse 13, the concluding verse to this church 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So this is applicable to the churches in general, not just to one particular specific church, but the church in general. And there's other passages that tell us that the tribulation is not only a period of wrath, but the church is exempt from wrath. First Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That could be a specific reference to the future tribulation period. And Revelation six seventeen. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Revelation six seventeen is in the midst of the tribulation, and as I've said, church is not in view in any of those passages. So tribulation is divine wrath, and the church is exempt from that wrath. We also have an argument from uh, the doctrine of eminence. There are no signs that precede the rapture, but if the church goes through part of the tribulation, that would mean that the signing of the covenant would have already taken place. That would be a sign. And that would point to the idea that the rapture could not take place until after the signing of the covenant. There are also several judgments that take place during the tribulation that are specific enough that they could be considered as signs that would precede the rapture if you took a post-tribulational view or even a mid-tribulational view. So it actually undermines this doctrine of imminence that I think is clear in other passages as well. We also have in Scripture several symbolic parallels, you might say, that somewhat set a pattern for how God brings judgment. When God brings judgment, he generally removes his people. For example, Noah, before the flood, he was warned, and he entered the ark, in fact, seven days before the flood came. And the text in Genesis 7 is very specific. And even Second Peter 2, 5 and 6, Peter speaks of Noah being removed before the flood. We also have a rapture, you might say, a type of rapture or a, an actual rapture in Enoch. So he's a, another parallel in Genesis 5:24. He didn't experience death, was removed and taken up without experiencing death like everyone else. Even Lot in 2 Peter 2:7, the point that Peter makes there is that Lot was removed from the cities of the plain before God rained down upon those cities, the fire and brimstone. So we have these parallels in terms of how God works and even some indications of the possibility of raptures in the, in the past as well. Elijah could be another example of one that was taken, that was raptured. So we have these Little hints in the scriptures of parallels. These are the major arguments. There are others, but uh, these are probably the most weighty, if you will. Now, there are some that argue against 
a pre-tribulation rapture from the perspective of history. They accuse John Nelson Darby of getting the idea from uh, Margaret MacDonald, who was a uh, charismatic in the 1800s, the early 1800s, and the accusation is that it's it's not a biblical doctrine, but one that was received from uh, a questionable person. But all of that has been debunked in terms of the argument, and it appears that John Darby had the idea much earlier than his encounter with uh, Margaret MacDonald. So that argument, along with some other arguments, and most of the other arguments are arguments that support the other viewpoints, so they have to reinterpret some of the passages that are used by the pre-tribulational view and look at them differently. For example, they would uh, take Matthew chapter 24, where it refers to what appears to be a rapture in verses 40 and 41, but in its context, that passage deals with with judgment, not rapture. The taking away is to take away in judgment, and uh, that can be defended exegetically. So there are other arguments against the pre-trib view, but those are easily answerable. Now, the proponents of this viewpoint, generally most dispensationalists are pre-tribulational. Some of the individuals, specifically Darby, is credited with one that at least revived the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture. Walvrid is one of the main writers John Walbred, J.D. Pentecost, C.L. Feinberg as well, Ryrie, Leon Wood, and many other dispensationalists would support a pre-tribulation rapture. So those are the views in terms of when does the rapture take place with respect to this period of time called tribulation. And there are other positions, other different viewpoints, and the following viewpoints are primarily developed in terms of the book of Revelation, but they are also used in a broader sense. So let's discuss them. I call them hermeneutical positions because they're more related to hermeneutics than they are to any specific time frame, like the other ones that we looked at in relationship to the millennial kingdom. That's a time frame or the tribulation period, another time frame. These are more hermeneutical. One that uh, is a little bit strange, I would think, to most people, but we don't want to discount it because it is growing in popularity today and becoming more prominent. That's the first one on the list there, the preterist viewpoint. The word preterist simply means past. So the essence of the viewpoint is that most prophetic events of The book of Revelation in particular and Bible prophecy in general take place in the past and more specifically, most prophetic events taking place in the first century. So that's preterism and they would put fulfillment of these passages in relationship to AD 70 and when the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel was destroyed and the Jews scattered From Israel in 70 AD, they would look at that as the wrath of God on Israel. So they would interpret the period preceding that as a period of tribulation. This is the tribulation period, and it 
they would see fulfillment of all the tribulation passages before 70 AD. That would be when the wrath of God would be poured out upon the nation of of Israel. And they would uh, find fulfillment of all of the catastrophic events that are described, not only in the book of Revelation, but also passages like the Olivet Discourse from our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the essence of it. Now there are there are two varieties of it, or two versions, you might say. There's the extreme version, the, the extreme preterism. And on our little timeline chart here, I have the tribulation there before 70 AD. And the extreme preterism would see Christ actually returning at 70 AD. And he would return, obviously... In what form? In fact, how can you hold to a second coming at 70 AD? Well, the only way to do that is you have to spiritualize all the passages that deal with the second coming of Jesus Christ. They would say that he comes in a spiritual sense in that he is coming in wrath, and his wrath is poured out in 70 AD. So the wrath of God is the second coming of Christ. So that even the second coming, putting it that early, is, is pretty, I think, extreme. Now, there's a moderate version, which it appears that probably most of the preterists would fall into, although I don't know the actual numbers. But moderate preterism wouldn't take a so spiritual approach to the second coming. They would see a kingdom period and then Christ's return. So, They would see judgment, certainly, at 70 A.D. and that tribulation period before 70 A.D., but then a period of kingdom during the church age, and then after that, they would have a return of Christ. So they would retain some of the literalness of the second coming, but most everything else preceding the second coming, they would have to spiritualize. So that's the the moderate preterist viewpoint. So you have two versions. The proponents of this viewpoint, H.B. Sweet, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, takes this perspective, so also the commentary of R.H. Charles, and one that might surprise you, but a modern commentator who has written a recent book, and he's a, I don't want to impugn his name, because he's an excellent expositor and a tremendous theologian, and does excellent work in other areas, but he takes the preterist viewpoint, that's R.C. Sproul. So you might consider his book if you're interested in studying uh, the viewpoint. And there's others as well. The strength of this viewpoint is the writers from this perspective, they do good historical background, and they give us a lot of good historical background of the first century. But unfortunately, when they come to interpreting biblical passages, they have to spiritualize them to make them be fulfilled within that historical background. And you might even say, as a strength, that this viewpoint would certainly be applicable to the original readers because they would see somewhat of a partial fulfillment of some of the prophecies of, for example, the Olivet Discourse in the events preceding 70 AD. So... That's a possible strength as well. A second hermeneutical view concerning eschatology and revelation in particular is the historicist view or historicism. This is probably the most popular viewpoint of these. 
at least more adherence, I think, to this viewpoint than any of the others. And the essence of it is that prophetic events find their fulfillment and take place throughout church history. And that would be from the first century to the to the end of the the age or the end of church history. So that's historicism. It's from uh, this school of thought that many of the date setters, historically, they have come out of the historicist view because of the tendency to find fulfillments. So if you find fulfillments, then uh, you, you try to project when the Lord may come and most of them have come out of this school of thought. For example, in 1988, I don't remember the the writer's name, but he wrote a little booklet, 88 Reasons in 1988. 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Take Place in 1988. Now, it didn't happen, obviously. Shook him up a little bit. Tried to make some more money, write another book, and correct his, quote, mistakes. And in 1989, he came up with 89 reasons why the rapture will come in 1989. But again, that didn't happen. But anyway, what they tend to do is, like I say, they find fulfillments during the church age. One of the weaknesses is that none of them agree. They all differ in terms of what certain, what particular events are tied to what biblical descriptions, so they don't agree. This arose during the Protestant Reformation, and if you remember, the Reformers didn't do a lot of eschatology. Most of their eschatology, they simply borrowed from the Roman Catholic Church, but one thing that they did depart was they took a historicist approach, and the eschatology that they did Adopt. They saw the popes, for example, as a fulfillment of Antichrist or the beast of Revelation chapter 13. And so also they would see fulfillments of other events. The seal, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments would have been fulfilled during the church age, mainly through particular European events, some of them invasions. For example, the first trumpet judgment they would identify as or at least one writer, would identify as the invasion of the Goths who invaded Rome in that early time frame and other invasions. They would tie to different trumpet judgments. So they would set different events in church history and tie them to biblical passages. A very common interpretation that is also held by some from our school or the Futurist school For example, H.A. Ironsides, he takes a historicist view in understanding the seven churches of the book of Revelation. And the historicist view identifies each of those churches with particular periods of time within church history. And the church somewhat pictures the condition of the churches in general during that period of time. For example, the church at Ephesus would be representative of the early church, beginning with the apostolic church and going into the church fathers, and they would see some apathy setting in and the church becoming lukewarm during that period of time. And then the next period of time would be a period of persecution, somewhat of an overlap. And the church at Smyrna, they would see as the church under persecution. 
Then you see apostasy at Pergamum and Thyatira, and and they would identify this with particular ages throughout church history. So we would be living at the end of the age, and the church at Laodicea would be the characteristic church of our period of time. But this comes out of the historicist view, and those dispensationalists, futurists that take that, I would say they are basically compromising some of the interpretation they're uh, borrowing from the historicist. So uh, that's where historicism, so that's the historicist viewpoint. Some of the proponents, and again, very good commentators, H. Alford, an excellent expositor, excellent commentary on the book of Revelation. He takes the historicist viewpoint. In fact, many commentaries I mentioned the Reformers. They tended to interpret Scripture from this perspective. Uh, most post-millennialists, if they take a viewpoint, they would generally oftentimes be his source, this as well. One of the strengths of this viewpoint is it does make the book somewhat prophetic, at least, more so than, obviously, the Preterist viewpoint. So that's historicism. A third view, which is the furthest, probably from from uh, our perspective, the idealist viewpoint. This viewpoint, the essence of it, is that the things that are pictured in the book of Revelation and Bible prophecy in general give us a picture in symbolic form of eternal principles. In other words, don't focus on events Don't look at personages. In other words, don't try to make identifications as to how these might be fulfilled during church history. So they would argue against the historicist, but they would also argue against us as futurists. And they would want to focus on these, what they call eternal principles. Now, Milligan, I think, captures the essence of that in this quote. He says, while the apocalypse thus embraces the whole period of the Christian dispensation, it sets before us within this period the action of great principles, not special incidents. We are not to look in the apocalypse for special events, but for an exhibition of the principles which govern the history, both of the world and the church. So that's a good description of it. There's a spiritual battle, we win. A principle of judgment, a principle of protection, of events. Now, hermeneutically, we should look for eternal principles, and that would be one of the strengths. But we would not deny the historicity of the events as well, or the prophetic elements of those events. In other words, the Bible is describing real events, real people that will, in fact, be fulfilled in real history. This viewpoint denies that. So that would be the weakness of it. The proponents, at least a couple of them, and again, these are not bad interpreters. They're very good interpreters. They're older. William Hendrickson, I actually bought his commentary in the book of Revelation mainly just to see how does he treat these passages? How does he come up with this idea? And how does he interpret the passages? So I wanted to see, so I got his commentary. And yes, he focuses on the principles. R.C. H. Lenski, another excellent commentator, he takes this viewpoint in his commentary. And I mentioned the strength is the Bible does contain eternal principles. 
So we should look for them, but not at the expense and denial of the historicity of the events. The viewpoint that we take, and I won't spend a lot of time on it since we will spend most of the course developing eschatology from this viewpoint, is the futurist. And we would see most events taking place in the future, future even from our perspective in the 21st century. And particularly the book of Revelation, we would see beginning in chapter 4 through the rest of the book, all of those events described, and we would see events and personages, all of those events would uh, be in the future. So this is a future look that is predominantly related to the nation of Israel when God returns to dealing with them, and we would see all of these events after the rapture. That's the perspective that at least I will take, and most futurists as well. Some of the proponents, again, John F. Walvrid, J.D. Pentecost, C.L. Feinberg, and again, these are dispensationalists. They take a futurist view, all premillennialists as well. And the major strength and the major distinction between this view and all of the other, not only hermeneutical positions, but all millennialism, post-millennialism, all of the tribulational views except the pre-tribulational view, the strength of the futurist is we maintain a consistent grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic. We don't have to change our hermeneutics in order to accommodate these scriptures. We maintain the literal approach. Now, this chart is somewhat of a summary of these four viewpoints. Preterist viewpoint, with the arrow pointing to the past, 70 AD, fulfillment then. The historicist, you would extend fulfillment throughout the church age. The idealist doesn't look to the earth. They're more, they're more spiritual than the rest of us. They look upwardly. They look for eternal principles. The futurist, the arrow points to the future, indicating that most of the events of eschatology, at least in the book of Revelation, are in the future, and there are a significant amount of passages, even in the Old Testament, that have that future fulfillment, those that are paralleled in the book of Revelation. I've already mentioned that some expositors combine some of the viewpoints. We would even add another one, a fifth one, an eclectic position. And this simply combines more than one of the views. And like I mentioned, Ironsides, and it's minor, but he does interpret uh, Revelation 2 and 3 from that historicist viewpoint. But everywhere else he is... Uh, solidly dispensational, solidly premillennial, solidly futurist as well. But some of the commentaries that you would uh, see doing this, this uh, eclectic approach, Leon Morris's commentary on the book of Revelation, R.H. Mounts, an excellent commentary. In fact, I would recommend this one, G.R. Osborne, probably one of the best commentaries on the book of Revelation, although he does have uh, a few elements that he combines some of these different views. He's predominantly futurist, however. And you might say the strength of this eclectic view is it combines the best of the views, but I think the inconsistency overshadows any uh, strength that that might 
hold for us. So that gives you the majority of the ma- at least the major different viewpoints, and there are several. We have a variety of ways that not only prophetic events are interpreted, but more specifically passages like the Olivet Discourse and the Book of Revelation. Interpreters take different viewpoints. Ours is by far the minority, but just because it's a minority doesn't mean that it is not correct. In fact, we believe that it is the most biblical view and most exegetically sound, primarily because it maintains a consistent hermeneutic. So that's a good place to end our study for today. Today what I want to concentrate on is the area of foundations, foundations for eschatology. And if you've taken the foundations course, ooh, Sheila, you haven't taken it, right? Mark, you took it, right? Foundations. Vivian was in it. You'll see a lot of uh, things that we do in that class. In fact, I'm going to give you a little bit of a summary of that class. Very brief. We spent the whole semester on it. So that's the main thing we'll do today. We're still in our introduction. I gave you an introduction to the introduction. In fact, there was an introduction to the introduction of the introduction. You remember that? <laughs> then we spent a good amount of time looking at why this whole area is important, the importance of eschatology. And one of the things I stressed is that everyone, everyone has an eschatology. The, most people are unaware of it, but everybody has a concept of the future, and everyone has a future hope. But unfortunately for most people, it's distorted, it's a counterfeit, it's wrong, it's unbiblical. So this course gives a biblical eschatology or biblical picture as to how things end. And then we talked about a lot of other things as well, why it's important. We talked about the purpose or intent of eschatology. Why does God give us so much detail concerning what he plans to do? In fact, I hope to show you that that detail starts from the very beginning. Almost, well, virtually nothing that God does, he has not told us what he's going to do ahead of time. So there's a lot of detail and there's a purpose behind it. And part of it is to give us a biblical perspective and a view from his perspective. We spent some time looking at interpreting eschatology because... It is so abused and misused and misinterpreted, and there's so many, so many views. I didn't count them, but how many different views did I give you? About 10 of them or so? I don't remember. Plenty. Plenty. <laughs> exactly. And we spent some time looking at those various positions and the fact that people differ in this area. That also, we could say, is important to have a clear view but I also wanted you to have a clear view as to where other people are coming from because most people, the view that we take is a minority view and most people will have a different view. And I'm talking about most people that uh, have a position in terms of eschatology. So, uh, part of our introduction is foundations. We won't complete that today. And what I mean by that is that uh, when we speak of eschatology, we're not talking about just future from the 21st century. We're talking about future in terms of all of Scripture. 
And in the introduction, I mentioned that at least 25% of every passage in Scripture was prophetic when it was written. So that means that God has been revealing the future to different people throughout throughout history, all the way beginning with Adam and Eve. He told them something of the future. So what we want to do is look at those passages. Many of them are fulfilled, but a lot of those long-range passages that God has and that we'll look at, and we'll spend particularly time on covenants, those covenants have a long-range fulfillment, all of which have not been even fulfilled today. So to have that understanding, that foundation, and that background helps us in understanding the overall plan that God has, and therefore what remains to be fulfilled concerning the plan that is yet unfulfilled from our perspective. So we're going to spend some time on foundations. Marcy was another one that was in the foundations class, right? Yes, I was. This is a little review of the whole course from an eschatological perspective. So, let's start with the foundation of prophets themselves. Since we're talking about prophecy and the revelation, it's good to understand the biblical perspective of prophets. And most people, when they think of prophets, they think of prediction. That is a small element of the work, the ministry, and even the writings of the prophets. That's only one small aspect of it. So when we talk about prophets, what I want to look at, first of all, is their message, their mission. This is all on your outline sheet there. And a little bit of the history of prophetic writings, prophetic work, prophetic ministry. So let's look at the message first. And we start off, the scope of prophecy is revelation in general. And when you think of prophets, think in terms of a broad view or a broad perspective, or if you want to have a definition, a broad definition of what a prophet is. A prophet in general is anyone that reveals God's word. Anyone that reveals God's word. So it's not limited to the Isaiahs, the Jeremiahs, the Daniels, the Malachi's, the uh, book of Revelation, John, for example. It's not limited to them. That's only part of the revelation of God. In Scripture, when we refer, in fact, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, what is he talking about when he says the law? The Pentateuch, first five books. What does he mean when he's talking about the prophets? In a broad sense, he's talking about the rest of the Old Testament. So it includes Song of Solomon. It includes the Psalms. It includes Joshua. It includes Judges. So from that broad perspective, what Jesus is saying is any revelation, in fact, Moses himself is one of the prominent prophets. So everything that he wrote is in this broad sense, a revelation, and thus is prophetic in the sense that it's a revelation from God. Does that make sense? So there are such things as historical prophets. The writer of Joshua, the writer of Judges, the writer of First and Second Samuel, First Kings, Chronicles, those were written by prophets. So that's the scope, the broad scope. 
the means by which they speak, and when you look at Second Peter 3, I think it's looking at prophets in this broad sense. Second Peter 1.21, Peter says, For no prophecy, he's not just talking about predictive material, not just limiting it to the 12 minor prophets and Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc., But no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In other words, they spoke what God gave them in order to reveal to others. And in this case, he's talking about written prophecy or written revelation, or he's referring to scripture in this broad sense. Does that make sense? And what he's saying, it is what God reveals, first of all, doesn't come from humans. In fact, man cannot come up with revelation. Science can't come up with it. Philosophy can't come up with it. It comes from God, not the human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit. That's a statement of inspiration. So everything that is inspired of God, revealed by God through the Holy Spirit, is prophetic material. So that includes from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. That is all prophetic material. It's all revelation. It is all as a result of the Holy Spirit moving upon men to write. And the canon of Scripture, obviously, is the, the content of that writing. So that's the means. The means is through men inspired by the Holy Spirit And in terms of prophetic events, one of them is already fulfilled. There are two advents, and everything prophetic surrounds around those two advents. And that begins with Genesis 3.15, which we'll look at. So that's kind of a key. And when we were talking about interpretation, I was talking about the harmony of prophetic material. If you want two points of reference, first coming, second coming of Messiah, we know him as Jesus Christ. The purpose of prophetic material is to correct. All of us go astray. All of us don't have a biblical perspective. All of us fall into sin. All fall short. So the prophets and the main ministry of those specific prophets that had the title prophets was to correct. But they're also to interpret that revelation. And they're the primary interpreters of all of the covenants as well. And we'll see that in this overview that I'll give you. There's a specific test. It's very important that a prophet be authentic because there are such a thing as false prophets. So Moses, through the Holy Spirit, as a prophet, gives a test for a prophet. And one of them is Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22. So that's kind of an overview of the message. It has to be validated. Has to be, uh, there has to be some evidence that it's of the Lord. So the mission of the prophets... First is to proclaim God's word in that broad sense, to proclaim God's word. So they were preachers, they were writers, they were historians, and they proclaimed it. And they did it in different forms, some of them verbally, some of them to their generation, some of them wrote it down such that it became inspired and inscripturated, and we have the results of that today. So they're proclaimers of God's word. They also had the function of anointing and judges and kings. The kings, we have a record of uh, that for Samuel. Remember Saul, first king, he was anointed by, does anyone remember? Samuel. Samuel. 
who was not only the last judge, but he was also a priest, and he was also a prophet. And he anointed, obviously, Saul, and then David was anointed as well. Was Jesus Christ anointed by one of the last prophets, last Old Testament prophets, you might say, John the Baptist. The writers of Scripture, so that's more specific in terms of proclaiming God's word. More specifically, there are some writers that God called to inscripturate his word, Scripture, writers of Scripture, main mission of the prophets. We'll see this also in our overview. They were enforcers of the covenants. They were like prosecuting attorneys. They called the nation of Israel to task. They revealed the sin and the departures primarily from the covenants and primarily from the Mosaic covenant. We'll take a look at that. They were the ones, and if you look at the prophecies, minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah as well, all of the, quote, prophets in that more limited sense, all of them, they're not speaking broadly, they're speaking in terms of specific mosaic stipulations that Israel was in violation of. They were the enforcers. They were defending God and demonstrating that God has been faithful to his covenant and the nation of Israel has been unfaithful. So in that sense, they were enforcers of the covenants. They were also showing that God was faithful in history. In other words, what God set forth in those covenants, God kept to the very letter every aspect of those covenants. And as a result, he was faithful. So no one can lay an accusation against him. It's Israel that is unfaithful. So in that sense, not only are they prosecuting attorneys, Sheila, she's an attorney, but they are defense attorneys because they defend the, the work of God, the character of God, and also they defend his faithfulness to his covenants. So they're prosecuting attorneys in laying out all of the failure of the nation of Israel, and they are also defense attorneys in terms of God himself. So they are enforcers of the covenants. So they're like God's prosecuting attorneys. The later prophets, but not limited to the later prophets, they specifically made very clear the Messianic kingdom. Now you have the Messianic, I see elements of it even in Genesis chapter 1, all the way to the beginning. I'll try to demonstrate that as well. We have some elements it's not clear, but the later prophets make it very, very specific, this messianic kingdom. Now, this is very important. This is a great or a huge foundation because there's so much confusion today concerning what is the kingdom. And the most common interpretation, as we saw last week, is that the kingdom is the church. It's not biblical. So if you understand these messianic prophecies and you understand this foundation you will find that on millennialism, for example, or the view that the church is the kingdom is so out of whack in terms of all of the Old Testament, and it's also inconsistent with what we have in the New Testament as well. But very specific prophecies concerning the kingdom that have never been fulfilled. And the only way you can hold to that, as we talked about last time, is by spiritualizing all of those passages. 
And it gives minute detail as well. We'll see that. So the prophets, that's a little bit of their uh, message and mission. Let's look at specifically those that have been identified as prophets. Who are the first prophets? Enoch. Actually, there's one before Enoch, but that's good. And the basis for Enoch? He was called a prophet in the New Testament, Jude. Jude, exactly. Jude identifies Enoch. In fact, Jude tells us that Enoch gives us the first revelation of the coming of a Messiah. Second coming, even. But there's one even before Enoch. Jesus identifies him. I'm thinking about Job. Job. Some of the arguments there that he's making. He would be a prophet in the broad sense. He's not identified anywhere in Scripture as a prophet. But, yeah, he would be in the broad sense. But there's one specifically identified. Abel. Abel. Exactly, Mark. Yes. Remember Jesus says from all of the prophets, from Abel to who? He classifies Abel along with Zechariah and everyone in between, all the prophets in between. Abel would be the first prophet. It's not a trick question. <laughs> You're looking me looking at me as if it's a trick question. If you want the scriptures, Matthew, Abel, Matthew 23, 35. And Enoch, Jude 14 and 15. The last one, Enoch, or uh, Jude 14 and 15. Mm-hmm. First prophets. So notice, Jesus identifies, and there's no other place, but Jesus identifies Abel. So Abel, very early, was one that spoke God's word, reveals God's word in some way. We don't have a biblical reference to anything he revealed, but Jesus is the one that classifies him. He's looking at it in that broader sense. There are some milestone prophets. For example, even Abraham. Abraham would be considered a prophet. And you might say, well, where does he prophesy? Well, we don't have anything specific, but we do have revelation. And he's called a prophet in Genesis eighteen seventeen. And we have some prophetic material in Genesis 15, 13 through 14 that God reveals to him that we have access to today. So even Abraham would be considered a prophet. Moses, he's clearly one of the greatest. He's identified at least in Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 through 12, as a prophet. He's a milestone prophet. He reveals the Pentateuch. In other words, God gave him a revelation of the first five books of the Bible. They are through Moses. It is prophetic in that sense, in that broad sense. So the book of Genesis would be considered prophetic material in that it's a revelation of God. It's historical, but it's a revelation of God. So also the book of Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, obviously. Daniel would be considered a milestone prophet, Because primarily he probably gives the most detail concerning Gentile nations and Gentile dominions. And his prophecies touch on probably the longest period of world history. One of the longest periods over 2,000 years. And also he gives a complete outline of Jewish history from his day all the way to the very end. So he's a milestone prophet. And you can come up with who's the greatest milestone prophet, right? That's kind of a question. (laughs) Jesus. Jesus, exactly. 
Christ is a prophet. And not only is he a revealer of God himself, not only is he a revealer of God's word, but he also very specifically is a revealer of things that have never even been revealed before. There are some things that he reveals that are not even contained in the Old Testament. For example, Matthew 13, when he speaks of the mysteries of the kingdom, he calls it a mystery. And a mystery in the Bible is something that God has not revealed beforehand, something that is new revelation. Paul gives some mysteries. The the ecclesia, the church, is a mystery because it's not revealed in the Old Testament. Matthew 13, parables of the kingdom. It's called the mystery form of the kingdom. Jesus is the only one that reveals that. He also reveals the rapture. Paul calls that a mystery as well. And Jesus is the first one to reveal the rapture in John 14, 1 through 3. That's the first revelation of the rapture in the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus reveals a lot of detail concerning a very important period of time called tribulation. Now, the Old Testament has a lot to say on that as well. But Jesus puts a lot of things in order and also sorts a lot of things out in Matthew chapter 24 concerning the tribulation. And there's many others. He gives a lot of detail concerning his own glorious appearing. And it's from Jesus that we get the concept that there's two comings of a Messiah. It's from his teaching, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, in Old Testament times, a lot of the rabbis were confused by all these messianic prophecies And a very popular view amongst the rabbis was that the only way that we can reconcile all these passages, there has to be two messiahs. They're so drastically different. There's this this glorious, conquering, this overwhelming messiah. But then there's this messiah that dies, Isaiah 53. There's this suffering messiah. And they just seem too, how can they be? How can a messiah die? And how can he be victorious? It's just too inconsistent. It's Jesus that introduces us to the concept that there's not two messiahs, there's only one messiah, but there's two appearings of that one messiah, and he fulfills part of the messianic mission in the first coming, and the rest of it in the second coming. And it's Jesus the one that gives us that insight. And then the New Testament obviously expands on that. So there are a lot of things like that, that Jesus is the one that reveals for the very, very first time. Jesus gives some of the specifics concerning the judgment of the nation of Israel in Matthew chapter 25. I'm talking about the Olivet Discourse here and also the nations, the judgment of the nations. We'll talk about that as well. And then we have all of the ones that we more commonly associate as prophets, Old Testament prophets. And that would include, obviously, Abel and Enoch and Abraham, Moses, Daniel, and eventually Christ, but it would include all the others, the Isaiahs, the Jeremiahs, the Ezekiels, the Daniels, the 12 minor prophets. And we sometimes classify those prophets as pre-exilic, in other words, those that had a mission to Israel, to the north, and Judah to the south. And then we have the exilic prophets that wrote just before and during the exile of Israel in, in Babylon, That would be Daniel and uh, Ezekiel, or Ezekiel and Daniel. And then we have post-exilic prophets, the three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So the Bible is full of prophets. Some we identify and others uh, we don't view them unless you have a 
biblical perspective on what prophetic material is all about. Make sense? Understand better prophets when we speak of prophecy. So they are the source of eschatology, and their writings tell us about eschatology all the way into or back to the book of Genesis. And that's what we want to look at.